Hello everybody, welcome to Reproducibility. Uh, we're recording on the 3rd of April during the lockdown. Um, so I think it's worth starting off with a big thank you to all of the people working in the healthcare services and the essential services to try and keep us safe and healthy and alive. Um, we greatly value your your work, dedication, um, and putting yourself at risk for everybody else. Um, and think you should get paid more. An awful lot. And we think you should get paid more. That, yes. Um, I'm joined, as always, by Sophia Cruvel. Hi. You've already heard. And Amy Auburn. Hello. And we have a very special guest and friend of the show, Anne Shiel. Hello. Thanks, guys, for having me. This is a great, great honor. Thanks for coming on. Um, how is everybody? Blank faces staring back. So I'm fucking tired, Sam. Well, the funny thing that's, is that that's how I do that it. Sophia's Zoom background has the "this is fine" meme, which means there's a speech bubble from her head saying "this is fine," which makes the situation much much more bearable. I'm. I might have. I, I might have had a, made a screenshot, so we can share <laughs> this in the show notes. Um, yeah, I think. I think that that this is fine background kind of is like how I feel right now. Like during the day, I have enough to do to kind of zone in to like work and I'm kind of trying to like, I'm playing kind of a bit more like, and then if I'm in my house, it's like all kind of fine and I can kind of forget. But then I went, I had to go grocery shopping this morning and it was like weirdly, just like very weird and very stressful. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. And how are things over in the Netherlands, Anne? Um, they're also mostly fine, I would say. Uh, so this is, I've been doing home office for three weeks now, I think, which is weird. It's like time loses meaning. Uh, the calendar loses its meaning. It's strange. Um, but I feel, I don't know, I feel very privileged because I can actually do everything from home. Like I don't even need to collect data in the lab or something. I have nobody to, that I need to take care of. Like it's like, I'm sort of the, yeah, I, I get the easiest pass on this situation. Um, I had, so I'm, and, and actually I think we've in our lab figured out a quite nice routine. Like we have a little Skype chat every morning and every afternoon at the end of the day, which is makes things much yeah nicer actually. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a very strange time. So I'm, I'm mostly been doing pretty good. Um, and I think on, on Tuesday, I actually felt like I sort of looked at the numbers and felt like, well, the curves really seem to be flattening now. It's maybe we're seeing, starting to see the light. And then, um, I learned that, um, a former colleague of mine that I worked with in Munich and that I was, um, um, friends with, um, actually died on, um, and he was, he lived in, in Italy and he was, uh, a couple of years younger than me, has a, young family um and that was quite a shock and uh yeah and then you think things are probably not so fine um and yeah it's 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 really really an, an absurd situation to be in it's so strange um and so tough and unfair i guess yeah i'm sorry to hear that yeah no um, no bro i didn't want to derail the whole conversation but it's just been such a yeah it's been quite a rough reminder of what this really means for lots of people. Um, yeah, but maybe that reminder is also important for some people as well. I, I, I can almost see some people starting to sort of see that because the shops are starting to have food again, because we've kind of, you're starting to see a little bit of the curve flattening that it's almost, I can imagine the complacency coming in soon. Um, and people kind of need to know that to, to not, kind of give up on social isolation and actually being engaged yeah i mean i think on the other hand the, the i think what we're probably seeing now still is that the uh, uh death rates are still rising right because that is sort of lagging behind the infection rates and so i think increasingly people will be directly affected i guess at some point we'll all be directly affected um, by some loss so <clears throat> that's the other sad part of it but that may be um also reminds people that it's not over no I, I just think that as a like I feel like now that I'm doing home office I see my 
how kind of my partner works a lot more as well. And I feel like compared to his profession, in my profession, we do have a very kind of a very big mix of kind of people and generations and our network is a lot larger there are a lot of people I care very deeply about in the field as well who are at risk um and so and you know I I think that that is gonna hit home at some point um as well but yeah um just some some things I've been thinking about because we've been like I'm as part of the kind of university system I'm in at Cambridge we have these groups of kind of colleges so groups of academics and I've got at least two emails already of kind of emeritus fellows um passing away and they're kind of starting to become more regular and it's a bit yeah it's a stark reminder um yeah but I guess it kind of sort of begins to push us in the direction of thinking about the research side of things where in a way an awful lot of the the research academia kind of bubble kind of is more protected than a lot of other uh fields like the vast majority of us aren't frontline kind of healthcare workers or under the essential you need to be working kind of in an office workplace or in a uh, services workplace so in a way we're kind of already a little bit more detached which is I think where um, some of my frustrations early on with the I could write so many papers and oh it would be great working from home was even even a month ago was kind of actually really insensitive um, and thankfully I'm seeing a lot less of that now but there's still hints of it there's still hints of expectations for high productivity um and i think that's that's a challenge that we need to kind of think about in the future as well yeah if i hear anyone say make the most of the sorry i think my connection is really bad i thought you were anyway if i hear anyone say make the most of the global pandemic in any kind of um version again i'm gonna scream it's just just that's just i don't know that seems so hellish to me as a as a thought. I mean, to, to be fair, I think in the beginning, so one thing that I found fascinating about the whole situation is how quickly your own perceptions sort of change from day to day. Uh, like both of the, like how long is the, this is going to take, what it really means, how um, stressful and frightening it is. Um, and going in, I was, there was a moment in the very beginning when I suddenly realized how grave this was and how long it would take and, and how, like what it would mean, like how many restrictions there would be. That was before there were actual rules in place. Um, but when the university already decided to move us to home office, um, and, um, that was like, I had, that was quite shocking to me at the beginning when I first actually realized, no, this is it right now. Like we're in this now. We, there's, you can't do anything about it. Um, because I've never been in any similar situation. And then to me, the, the most helpful thought was to treat it as kind of an adventure holiday, you know, to just say, oh, okay, this is what it is now. It's a very odd situation, but you can still do cool things. You know, there's still possibilities. This doesn't mean that, you know, that, that everything is horrible or something. Like you just basically make the best of it. And so I think, you know, I think like people have, I, I would cut people a bit of slack if they, um, yeah, try to, to look at these, like not constantly think about all the horrible things that are happening because you have to keep yourself, yourself sane as well. It's, it's genuinely, I think, not very helpful to think of all the horrible things that are happening all the time because it will just completely, um, yeah, sort of, um, petrify you. Uh, but yeah, of course it, it's, it's one thing to, to think about what, what your life looks like right now and what you can, what's the best you can do and to, uh, tweet about how great the situation the situation is when maybe people are reading your tweets who are in a very different different situation and you're just not thinking of it at the moment. This is I've been listening to a lot of radio and they're all now at home as well <laughs> and they're interrupting each other a lot more even on professional radio. So I'm going to cut us some slack. Um, 
but yeah, no, the only thing I wanted to say is that, um, like, I do think kind of on your point, Anna, and also on Sophia's point is that there is a privilege that we have in being able to kind of continue at least some sort of work. And that has helped me like uh, in, in a way, just having some sort of routine, whether that is, you know, it's not going to be as productive. It's not going to be kind of in the same state as, but we are so lucky to have work. (laughs) Um, Even if it's of a different nature. Um, And like, yeah, there's no, and my institution has been not been putting a lot of pressure on us to keep up productivity. Um, but I, I think I would struggle a lot more if I'd be out of a job now or if I couldn't actually do something, um, which I think is, is kind of slightly like, you know, gives me a reason uh, to get up in the morning. Yeah. And maybe that brings us quite nicely to crisis research, fast and slow. Um, so one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to Anne uh, this week um, was about a blog post that she recently put out on the 100% CI. Um, I think maybe it'd be best to just hear your perspective on it, Anne. Uh, yeah, so um, I published the, uh, the blog post uh bit of a uh, yeah I think almost exactly a week ago a bit of a week ago um because I kept so basically I I kept seeing um papers pop up on Twitter that were written in response to the crisis so people already collecting data for about the situation <clears throat> and uh it felt like there was sort of an increasing drum beat of this and I also re- felt that there were tons of reactions uh, that people got for it. So there was a lot of, and I mean, I think probably rightly so, it's very impressive if people can um, put together studies um, so quickly and if they show that they're very um, concerned about the situation and want to help and want to basically put their research resources um, to um, try to to help in this situation in any way that they can. I think that's, that's a very honorable um, intention. And um, and I was just thinking, okay, so this is, this seems to be increasing a lot. Like, it seems like a lot of people are basically just putting everything aside and focusing on this situation right now. Um, and they're being incredibly fast. They're doing research incredibly fast. They're sometimes writing papers in a week or something. And, um, and I thought that was, it's funny in the sense that in the last years in the, in the open science movement, I think a very strong, um, sort of sentiment has been that we probably need slower science to do better science and doing things very fast is often a bad idea. Uh, Having many pressures um, is often a bad idea and leads to more errors and more, more bias perhaps. And, um, and so I thought this is the exact opposite that we're seeing right now. And, um, uh, and, and I was worried about it. And so my, in my blog post, I just wanted to point out that um, I think you, the, the first impulse, and I can totally share this, I totally share this intuition. You want to do something useful. You think, you know, every little helps. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe able to run a study that's not like going to save the world, but we might be able to help a little bit. Like, we might be able to find a way that uh, to communicate things in a slightly better way, or we might be able to, um, I don't know, behave, um, sort of flatten the curve in some way, in a tiny little way, um, and. But you don't think about the opposite. Like, what if what you're doing might actually hurt? Um, also, what if even if you're any any maybe manipulation or intervention that you're suggesting is not effective, or maybe even if it is effective, um, it means that that the people who read your work, who engage with your work, um, don't engage with other things that they also could have engaged with or might not be using other things that they could have used this is the, an opportunity cost of your work um, and it's possible that the alternatives would have been better so you might be doing harm by taking these resources sort of attention away um, from others and I think this is something we're not used to thinking about and so I wrote the blog to basically just say look we need to when you want to help you also need to consider that it could backfire um, that there's a cost this is the one thing. And then 
And then the other part of it is that I also think as a, as a meta scientist, um, I just feel like this is a very interesting situation where we see a lot of incentives that are very different from usual. It's like you can, you know, not just that people are trying to help, but they get, they have all this potential glory that they can get from the situation right now with all this attention that you get from it. And so having to do super fast research with the potential outcome that you're treated as a hero on Twitter, that in, that doesn't seem like a very healthy mix, uh, sort of from a meta scientific perspective. Like that seems a lot like a situation where we would expect, um, biases to creep in quite, quite a lot. Um, and so I feel like, uh, COVID papers or crisis papers are probably at a higher risk for bias than normal papers, if I had to bet. I don't know, but I would guess so. And they're written very fast, and so that increases the risk for errors as well. Um, and so, yeah, I just think um, we should be very cautious with these things, and we should be um, we should consider the potential harm we might do by doing things not extremely well. Um, yeah, and I yeah, maybe as a, as a final note, um, I think there also in this, I don't really go into that in the blog post, but I think there are different, completely different types of crisis research. So uh, I think it's completely legitimate to make, to want to make use of this super unusual situation to study human behavior or to be, to study things that might be useful for the next crisis where you have to start data collection very soon. I completely understand that. Um, but you might not have to publish it now. And I don't really understand then why people would rush data analysis and, and writing that up. Um, a different type of paper that's also coming out is um, papers where people seem to hope to have an impact right now. And then I can understand that you need to, need to rush things. Um, and then maybe a third paper is basically sort of monitoring the situation or collecting data that, that is important for making policy decisions that might also be very useful right now. Yeah. I wonder if... Um... Uh, so in a way, it's you kind of focused a lot on the the research being done, and I wonder if kind of part of the the sort of time cost harms that you mentioned, sort of, I'd I'd be really surprised if the, for example, the reviewing standards aren't also that little bit lower for the kind of the hope that oh, if this is relevant, then like it, it's okay. I'd normally be a bit harsher, but maybe maybe this time. It's relevant, so it might be important to get out sooner, especially with so many places putting out rapid review calls and um, and these kind of things. I mean, I I think actually the the day after reading your blog post, I wrote a re- or did a review for a paper that should have had m- more time put into it before submission, without giving too much away, I suppose. Um, but it was also it didn't need to be submitted now. It it could have been submitted in six months' time and have the exact same kind of impact. So that was my kind of... If, if part of the impetus is to, to make a difference and to help and to contribute, then sometimes the best way of doing that is to not be in the system and kind of clog it up. Yeah, that that's also something I um I thought early on when so when when the um when sort of lockdowns started, I heard a lot of um colleagues who now have their children at home and felt that they are really struggling to um get work done. And so I also assume that our reviewer workforce is quite is much more limited than it usually is, right? So if you're adding more papers now to a system that's already strained um, that's not going to be great as well. Um, and yeah, so that, and I, I also completely share your, your view that, um, review is likely to be more lenient than usual. Um, so I think I've, I've, I mean, since the blog post came out, I've been in a lot of discussions with people, um, who've made very good points. Um, so many people, or well, not many, a few people who are involved in some of these, um, rapid response initiatives have pointed out that, um, not like just speeding things up doesn't always mean you're losing quality because sometimes you just cut time that is idle. Otherwise, where well, papers just lying around. And actually, I think, uh, somebody, uh, also pointed out that if like a review process drags on forever, sometimes in the next round, you've forgotten about the paper. So you actually pay an extra cost for it taking so long. And that, that is all true. Um, 
but I think uh, there is there is a part where the the rushing things um, is definitely harmful. I think um, you do notice more problems when you spend some more time with it. But also, I this I have the exact same intuition. I think I feel like if I was reviewing a paper like this right now, I'd feel bad if I were being too if I was being too harsh. Like I, if I would if I would sort of have my normal standards. I would feel like, ah, this is, but aren't you being petty? Like right now we're supposed to be, you know, this is more important. Like, ah, maybe it doesn't have to be perfect and, and that. And but wouldn't I, you, sorry, like, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you modify that? So wouldn't you make that um, conditional on like, sort of the kind of paper that it is? So I can see how that might happen for a paper that, well, like what, like like the type that um, could be impactful and helpful right now, but would you apply that same kind of reasoning to to just any paper um, that has to do with this in this situation? Uh, the, the, it depends, and I mean I haven't actually done any. Well, I mean I've I've um, voted on the um, proposals to the Psych Science Accelerator for the um, uh, for the call that they put out, and then they got, I think, 66 responses, uh, 66 proposals for studies in four days, um, and then they selected 10, and the um, and the members could vote um, for which ones they should adopt. And they, so I wrote, the, I, I read those short proposals and voted on them. But um, I think uh, if you are part of, a, like, if you're reviewing for, so many journals have now put out calls where they offered rapid review. Or something of that kind, I think. So if you're a part of that program where you know as review you're supposed to be very quick, or you know that the paper is going is supposed to be processed very quickly, um, I feel yeah, I feel like it would it would affect my standards. I don't think I would review it in the same way as I would review another paper. Um, but it also depends a bit. So um yeah, for example, the, with the, the PSA initiative, I think is an is an interesting case because where like once they have already they've decided on three studies that they want to run, I think that puts you in a very different situation where you're sort of already committed to doing it, and where criticizing it might become more difficult. And then other cases where, for example, the um, um, the initiative as Royal Society Open Science for registered reports that are rapid response. I think there maybe it's a bit easier to be critical because you just get proposals and you can reject them. You know, you can just say, um, you're sort of less committed to making something work just because of the situation. So we yeah, so, so pre, pre-study peer review might work. Um, what about post-publication peer review? Um, because surely, like, I mean, at least um, these kind of papers are getting a ton of attention, right? And yes, some of it, or a lot of it maybe, is the kind of heroic thing. Um, but but surely by getting so many more eyes on these papers, then you probably, there's so many more varied eyes, I guess. Am I stretching that saying, I think I am? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So you, might, you might get more critical people on like, looking at things as well. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I think, I think that's general. Like, there will be a, a main effect of getting more people to see it. There's a higher chance that you get, um, that errors are found, that you get criticism. Um, that's clear. What I worry about in this situation, though, in, re- so basically what I criticize in my, uh, blog post is that I've, I've seen so many preprints come out, right? And I've, I kept track of them. I actually updated it this morning. So I, I only looked at, um, psychology peer review, uh, preprints. And I, I think they have, I found 35 by now, uh, and 29 of them are empirical. Uh, and I think that's quite a lot. They, they keep, uh, uh, the speed is, is re- increasing, I think. Um, so people put out preprints and they get read by all sorts of people. I think they get much more attention from people outside the field. Um, which they often supposed to. That's kind of the point, right? You want to help. So that means you need to communicate to people who are not psychological researchers, but who work in, uh, medical areas or in, in policy, uh, stuff like that. Um, and those people are not as well prepared to, um, judge your methods and the limitations of your study. Um, and I find that, I find that dangerous. Um, 
But on the other hand, it's of course true that the preprint format also makes it much more likely that you will receive more criticism and that errors will get um, detected and, and changed. And that's great. I think there's been a similar debate a few months ago when um, preprints about um, like uh, in, in, in biomedicine started coming out about the virus and when there was, I think, at least one preprint that suggested it was the, the virus was engineered or something like that. Uh, I think it was in bioarchive and then it got like immediately shot down basically. So, and then people were debating, is it a good thing to have these preprints because then like fake news spread more quickly, but also we see this super fast, uh, response from the community that sets things, sets things right. And that might also not have happened otherwise. So it has, yeah, it has pros and cons. It's difficult to, for me to, um, predict sort of which factor outweighs the other. Um, but so the thing is, with the psychology papers I've seen, I'm often not at all convinced that we need them right now. Like, this is just to me, you know, like one, yeah, do we, do we really need to rush this now? So do we need to lower our standards that we usually have and accept making more, um, errors? I think that's super dangerous. And, and there are other medical areas where things might genuinely be different. Um, and there might also be psych, there are also psychology areas where things are different, but some of these papers are just like, yeah, this is nice, but you could have, you know, we could have had this paper next year. That would have been totally fine. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I was thinking, uh, with Sophia's kind of the, the heroic researcher kind of perception is kind of, it, to me, it's a bit of a spectrum between is that because this is something that's super relevant and it's actually going to help and that's why they've done it and it needs to be out quickly? Or is it kind of, oh, I'm really impressed that you were able to do this so quickly? And if it's that case, then it's like, you, I don't know, it feels like you want brownie points. And like that that's it's self-serving at that point. And I hate, and I'm, I'm trying not to slander people because I, I don't actually have any specific thinking in mind, but... I, th- I, I think it, it, I'm, I think it's definitely a fact. I mean, this is very uncomfortable to sort of admit that this is an incentive that we respond to, you know, that maybe part of the reason why you did this is because you wanted the Twitter responses. Um, I, but, you know, part of the reason I wrote the blog post is also the Twitter responses. That's, that's just true. Uh, and I mean, it makes me sound like an, like a massive asshole, I guess, but, uh, it's, if I just, if I'm just on, it, it didn't feel like that to me. It didn't feel like, oh, I want all the Twitter glory. How could I best achieve this? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm terrible with writing blog posts. I always take forever. And this was, I was really motivated this time because I felt it was, this was important. But part of the, this is important feeling is definitely, oh yeah, people are going to pay attention to this. That will feel nice. You know, it's just like we're not immune to this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> I think there's, I think for me, what is crystallizing here is a differentiation between like, do we need the speed? <clears throat> and I think that's somewhere where I think I agree, you know, there are, we should only be speeding up the things that we really need to speed up. Um, and we need to have a concerted debate about what has to be sped up and what doesn't. But then I don't think we can like we are living through unprecedented times. And I think, you know, it is natural that people, people will change just like our lives have changed. Our thinking has changed, you know, like the thing about technology has changed. Like my whole area is just completely different just in the way we think about things and the, what people want to know. So, and I think that's not just me, it's kind of us all. And so I think it's, I think it's crucial to say here that probably the criticism doesn't lie in researchers adapting their research to fit this kind of new mindset. And yes, like I think there are opportunity costs. There are projects, for example, that I have kind of stopped doing at the moment, which I should definitely be doing and I've invested a lot of time in. Um, But yeah, I think there's, for me, that's a differentiation is that I wouldn't, while I would caution, you know, we shouldn't throw ourselves into things, um, and we should consider and weigh up our options, our research options, and where we can make a difference. Um, I wouldn't actively criticize those who 
do feel like they want to change their research questions a bit or add some questions. Or, but I do think for me, if I crystallize the criticism, it would be that speed issue. Yeah, like I said, I'm not like I'm not against uh, sort of any crisis research at all. I think um, I think one one thing I also find fascinating about the situation is that it really change like it makes you feel much more clear about your priorities. I think like there's a lot like suddenly like it just puts things into perspective, and uh, I think that can be really interesting and also really helpful. And so. Um, yeah, there's this uh, quote, I forgot who it is from. So uh, I know this from uh, my supervisor, Daniel Larkins. Um, he says, it's like, what is the most important question in your field and why are you not working on it? As a question you should ask yourself. Um, and I think most of us are probably not working on the most important question in our field. I don't think we should all be working on the most important question, but it's it's. I think it's very useful to ask yourself that. And, you know, if this is, um, if really important questions are being thrown up right now, um, then, and you think that you can actually contribute to them in a meaningful way, I think that's great. It's just that I think it's very unlikely that you're going to make an, in, an impact now. Um, but it could be that this knowledge you might gain now will be super useful in the future. Um, and we, we keep yeah, moving and, between. And we should, Sorry, we, we keep moving between sort of individual level and kind of field level criticisms here. Um, so Amy, Amy earlier said um, maybe, you know, we should have like an, a concerted effort to decide like what the things are that we should focus on right now or that we that, that or that we can speed up right now in that sense. Um, but then we kind of also, you know, talk about talk about what um, individuals um, should think about when when choosing what to do kind of thing. Um, and I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure where, I mean, this is not about sort of laying blame, but sort of where the, the responsibility is, because I don't think we have, and I think that's probably a more general flaw, right? Like we don't have any kind of infrastructure for deciding these things at a field level, because it's all really quite individual. Um, and I guess then sort of things like the Psychological Science Accelerator are actually instances where we are like where people are trying to um to sort of make these decisions at a broader level um but yeah i mean i, I guess as we as we are right now the responsibility probably does lie with the individual um but like the individual it's like it's like you are you know it's not that you are in the traffic jam you are the traffic jam and if i would if i would <laughs> like take the argument of like some, you know, if I would kind of question my own argument previously about it's okay for individuals to change tack in some way or another, I would, you know, I've seen these arguments on Twitter of people saying, you know, like we're there are other really important questions that are not COVID-19 that we've been, you know, that we have honed our methods for, that we have have the expertise for, we have climate change, we have kind of algorithmic bias, we have, you know, a huge amount of other issues that I cannot think about. Um, and at the moment, we're behaving like toddlers playing football. You know, if, if they all go after the ball, <laughs> where it's going in the most interesting place, and actually, they would play a lot better if we would all just stick to the position we're best at. Um, so that would be my kind of criticism on the individual level that for that one toddler it might make sense to go after the ball because like they want to be able to make a difference but actually it might for the field level it might be better for them to just stay put yeah I, I totally agree with that view um this is also something that daniel said you know it's like the really important the, the really important things are still the really important things you know that were really important before the crisis and we still maybe need to work on those um, I think as for the point about the field being very individualized, um, or like the response being very individualized. Um, so, I mean, for one part, it, I think it's not entirely true. So some of the, um, um, society, psychological societies have, um, um, had a response sometimes, at least the, the German psychological society, um, uh, issued some, um, wrote an email to everybody on letter saying 
um, that um, I think it was focused on on clinical psychology or how our contributions to um, public mental health, basically how we could uh, contribute. Um, that I thought was nice. Um, and then, yeah, I think having more coordinated responses does require um, a more coordinated field in the first place, right? And the, I think we definitely don't have that for the most part. And there might be some subfields where that's different, not sure. Um, and yeah, the question is if we should already be there or if that, how, how bad it is to not have it. I have to say one thing that really disappoints me is that we don't already just have more to offer going into the crisis. Like that we don't, um, this is also something that Stuart Ritchie has been writing about on, on Twitter and, um, just put out, uh, an article on, on unheard about it that, Behavioral scientists have not been very helpful, uh, even though a big part of the crisis is behavioral. And that's quite disappointing. And I think it's not very surprising if we consider that in the last years we uh, realized that a large, large chunks of our literature of the last decades aren't very reliable. So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a real shame. And like now it really bites, I think, maybe. Um, so it would be yeah, nice I think, to be. Uh, yeah. Lauren Hallian's been making a very similar point as well. That kind of a, a lot of research, like we already have so much research. Why aren't we going back and actually using what's already there rather than sort of oh, I need to run a COVID study? It's like, do you? There's a there's a lot else out there that might actually inform this. Um, but everyone else is doing it, Sam. Difficult. Well, yeah, and that, that's part of the reason why I think <laughs> it's a really interesting discussion for me and Amy, because we're both headlong into planning online studies. Um, and I think we, we both, I, I assume Amy shares this as well, that we kind of want to be, want it to be useful and part of the, well, let's just call it good science for, for ease. Um, rather than being a kind of capitalizing on the situation so much as realizing that it's a very unique situation and that that makes it useful for to know more about. Um, uh, no, I was just wondering like, if, if either of you are making use of... I, I think for Amy's project, it doesn't make as much sense. I don't really know that much about what you're doing, Sam. Um, are you making use of the um, like the registered reports, uh, the rapid rapidly reviewed registered reports thing? You're nodding in a video, in a, in a podcast. <laughs> oh, I thought you said you were, sorry. Um, no, sorry, I got confused there. Uh, no, because largely we're, in our case, we're kind of working with a few other groups to to sort of collect much, much more exploratory kind of data that's going to be available openly. And that's kind of been more my focus than specifying a super specific hypothesis just now, which is why we haven't gone down that route. Um, but that's also why I'm super keen to make sure that, again, everything's open and we're kind of quite careful about the measures that we use and stuff like that so that so that the effort and the time is still being put into making sure the quality is as high as we can make it. So what are your projects about? I have I only know that you are working on something, but I'm curious to, <laughs> to know more. Do you want to go first, Amy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... So this is like a group, a project with a group of researchers where we already were working on a study before a study idea on social isolation in adolescents and their use of digital technologies. Um, and so naturally, this study is not going to happen because it had to be in the lab. And the idea more or less is to actually track behavioral data from hopefully from phones to look at um so it's, I've kind of gone the let's overcomplicate things and actually take a long time to design the study. Um, but is more or less there's an app that is already available that we could um, reconfigure quite quickly um, with the necessary funding, which collects um, behavioral data off the phone, kind of like movement, um, what apps are being used, kind of, for example, how much typing is being used in the apps. And from which you could extract like pretty interesting behavioral profiles around how the digital technologies are being used. Um, kind of routine, you could look at like how regular these activities are. 
Um, you could even extract, you know, guess kind of when people are asleep, uh, when people are moving, etc. And the app sends can send kind of daily, for example, daily notifications where people can fill out and kind of one or two questions about how they're feeling and then possibly weekly or bi-weekly questions on kind of more in-depth measures. And so the idea is to have a look at um, how different forms of, for me, the interesting thing is how different forms of technology use during isolation can kind of mitigate, kind of look at the profile of people over time, you know, is a mental health profile going down or up and how are different activities interplaying um, and there's going to be data collection on different time frames as well. Like it's it's like it's kind of hard to keep in in my own head uh, as well. But yeah, so the idea is is that because actually digital technologies are a completely different part of our life now, um, and it's to probe that and then to make that data available as quickly as possible to kind of maybe shape recommendations around what sorts of things can be helpful for people. Um, but yeah, because it's not just an online survey, it takes a lot longer. So I've been working on that for three weeks, but we're still in the, the pre-ethics stage. Is it, uh, I, I was just thinking, so adolescents have super screwed up circadian uh, rhythms, right? Or at least that it shifts a lot, right? And I, I just I just realized that I guess now that they're not going to school and that's like big, uh, big sort of thing that would um, keep sort of everybody's circadian rhythm roughly in, in some you know, normal way yeah. would falls away that, that it has a big impact on their sleeping patterns. Yeah, it could like the, the, the hope really, and this is, you know, the, the study is going to cost a bit of money. Like it's not going to be cheap to run. Um, but the hope is if we get quite a large proportion of participants, um, in kind of different areas at the moment, we're sticking to the UK, but we're hoping to expand um, we can actually have some natural experiments. So, for example, if one state, for example, Wales, opens their schools up two weeks earlier before England, then we can actually actually collect this sort of valuable data. And that because we probably know that we'll go through multiple waves of social distancing and being enforced and probably being loosened, the hope is that, that these kind of... so. Um, the hope is, yeah, to collect this data to under to once the natural experiments occur, that those who can actually analyze that data well can go back into the data and have the timestamps of the behavior on that day. Um, and yeah, but there's a lot of you know, it's it, it's ethically quite complicated and thinking about what data can be shared, what data needs to be aggregated, and um, things like that. But yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> That sounds um, super cool. I think that that's really that's really fascinating. And it's really nice that you're thinking so much about kind of creating this study to provide other people that have kind of extra expertise to look at it afterwards as well. So there's like there's a legacy to it rather than it being a sort of I want to run this analysis to write this paper kind of thing. It's kind of very forward thinking and sort of collaborative almost, which is really nice. Yeah, the hope is to get the basic study up and running and it's going to go for probably 10 months, um, 10 months up to a year. Uh, and so to have like different add-ons. So if we get enough, the hope is to actually get to advertise this study quite widely with the help of various stakeholders. Um, and the hope is then that we could actually have like little pockets of the study that run like others, like little add-on studies that so people can pitch like oh I want to see whether a nudge on the phone to do x will help and so we can kind of add these on but yeah at the moment it's just getting the basic car built <laughs> and on the road and that's going to be difficult enough yeah and like it might not happen at all I must say like you know ethics might just be like no 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 <laughs> no smartphone tracking in times of crisis and you know then we would need to respect that so um yeah i can't see that happening in germany at all <laughs> somehow i think it's i think it's a super cool study but like you i think i think you're, it's probably more likely in the uk than in germany yeah coming out of cambridge with cambridge analytica we'll have to see but this oh. podcast shouldn't be about my study so um 
Yeah, which is not even even ethically approved. <laughs> I think with I think GDPR makes things a lot easier in that regard. At least we have some, you know, if it if it complies with some basic standards, I think it's probably easier to uh, adopt even in countries like Germany. <laughs> have you talked to any Germans about data protection recently? I mean, like even right now, when it's when it's when it's about like trying to to see whether there are ways for us to use phone data to, um, you know, like limit the spread of this virus people are like well well i do not think yeah so. i know but i mean but i mean studies it's not you're not imposing this on anyone right yeah and, i mean it's yeah, it's always true. like this we i mean people already do phone tracking studies in germany yeah. it's not like that's impossible okay so. yeah true 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 talking about uh studies this hasn't happened before but we are we're running over schedule and i actually have a meeting about this study now um so i might exit the podcast and let you <laughs> wrap up individually um this is a podcast first in a crisis <laughs> all um, rules are off the table <laughs> thank you for listening guys <laughs> thanks Amy. bye <laughs> Now we still need to hear about your study, Sam. Yeah. Um, so uh, my kind of work's largely focused on adolescent repetitive negative thinking, so kind of worry, anxiety, um, that side of things. Um, so we, we've we had a few studies um, that have either been in the works or so we had some data collection in schools um, that had to stop. Uh, because of this, which is perfectly fine. It also meant that I have, I've had to simulate some data for my two undergraduate students so that they can actually have some data to analyze for their kind of final final report. Um, so our study is it's similar to Amy's in the sense it's online, it's much simpler. I didn't realize how complicated hers was gonna, gonna become, but that's really cool. Um, so it's largely gonna be focused on adolescents and their parents kind of giving uh, sort of mental health survey type stuff worry rumination um a bit about kind of more activities as well um so actually amy's we're borrowing amy's one of amy's measures on activities um so there's also going to kind of be that in um there's some eating disorder stuff in there there's some kind of cognitive flexibility stuff in there it's kind of um something for everyone Something for everyone, yeah. Um, but it's it's very focused on adolescents because that's kind of our focus within within this particular research. Um, there's a couple of other studies out in the UK. Um, so there's, I think it's just called the COVID-19 social study um, from UCL, led by Daisy Fancourt, um, that's very similar in a lot of respects. So kind of weekly testing for roughly three months or until the end of social isolation measures and then some follow-ups um but hers at the minute is kind of focused on adults um there's another one that's come out of oxford from kathy cresswell and the emerging minds network that's uh currently collecting data from parents kind of about their kids um so to me there was this there was also this kind of like gap in if we're interested in kind of worry and anxiety then sort of now is the time that that's all kind of heightened for everybody right so now is kind of the time that you're not asking people who are currently fine to reflect on when they have been worried about things kind of worry is a bit of a normal state at the minute so now now is a kind of a useful time i think to to run this kind of study um but again, a, a huge part of my focus with this has been sort of really communicating with other kind of mental health networks about what they think is going to be useful information to know for later. So it's kind of, I'm almost seeing my role in this as more of a setting something up that other people can make use of, um, mainly because I, I never wanted this to be a, I really want to run this study because I want to write this paper kind of kind of approach i wanted it to be something that has that that legacy to it that sort of just very open let's let's try and kind of let everybody learn what they can from this and i think between between the studies that i've mentioned and ours and a couple of other ones that i know are kind of getting set up there's going to be a lot of these kind of 
well, let's say five or six of these kind of big studies, um, kind of open to all age ranges, all kind of demographics, hopefully, um, that I think should give us a really powerful tool for future research to to make use of uh, of all of this information. Um, I mean, one one of the questions that I've asked myself for a long time is why why don't we use do secondary data analysis more? Like in in so much social personality, even a lot of mental health research. There's huge studies that are out there. There's these kind of massive longitudinal studies that have collected mental health data from birth. Right? There's so much out there that do when you write your grant, when you plan your study, does it need to be a new underpowered data set or can you actually make the most of what's what's already there so I kind of my aim is that between all of these studies like they become the studies that people are sort of saying well okay we can look in that that's what our next paper is going to be that's like the information's or the data's there um, we just need to analyze it um, and it's really nice that all of these other big studies have, have also sort of embraced the same let's make everything open everything's going to be very kind of collaborative open data give it out there it's really encouraging i i think that's great that that sounds really cool Uh, i think you know i i think these types of like track that's track behavior over this crisis and maybe after that could be really useful like you I, i never considered this but you're completely right that if a state that's usually more rare is that which makes it more difficult to study is very common now, like worry and anxiety that just makes it much easier to to study sort of the the dynamics of it. So that's that's a really cool approach. And I, I actually also in the beginning of this, I, I also had a phase where I thought this is gonna be the time for secondary data analysis right now, because so many people can't collect data right now, it's more difficult. Uh and I've uh, it's funny because it's I've, I haven't really seen that, but that makes sense because you don't have to rush it, right? Like it's just like you, it's probably more people might actually focus on or think about using existing data sets. I think that could be really cool. I think in in the long run, maybe maybe this is a chance for uh, remembering that we already have uh, a treasure trove of stuff. I mean, for, for I mean, and I don't just I don't mean uh, about the crisis necessarily, just in general. I think I mean that was something when when we wrote the the grant application for the the project I'm currently on it was I mean that there, there was a section in there that did ask kind of have you searched for existing data sets or studies that you could use instead of collecting new data and I thought that was really nice but it was also one of these kind of write two sentences that we know you're going to say yeah we've looked and there's nothing we need to we desperately need this new data give us the money um but i kind of wonder if that shouldn't be much much more of a prominent kind of part of of a lot of both grants but also that's that's i don't know student student projects as well why not yeah that's super interesting i I like that question but i agree that's probably not going to help because at the moment when you're filling this in you're already set like you're not going to say oh actually i haven't done that Hmm, maybe i should just look at existing data before applying for this grant it's not going to happen but maybe like i don't know Uh, what would be what would be a way to uh make people ask people this question before they think about applying for a grant to collect new data yeah i mean i guess you could maybe do it when when grant applications have like a two-stage when you have that kind of expression of interest that then gets a kind of mini review like that's a point where you can have someone on the review team searching for existing studies that were already there and then you you can ask people like we found these three longitudinal studies that seem to contain basically the same measures that you're kind of probably going to be interested in could you comment on that specifically i guess the problem is that people won't be uh the the incentives are the wrong way around right because if you if it already exists then you shouldn't get money to do it yourself um but that's not that's not great for science but so you you're always going to be motivated to not look very closely and then pretend you look close enough um, yeah. But so I don't know. Can we? Is there a way to incentivize secondary data analysis or something? 
I mean, there, there are grants for secondary data analysis, but I think they're maybe just not normally the ones that people think of first. Um, I mean, it's the ones that I'm going to be thinking of <laughs> first. Um, can you can you but, give an example? I don't I don't think I've heard of this. Do you have any examples? Um, so the e the ESRC in the UK has a secondary data analysis um, kind of cool that I I think is just like a regular ongoing kind of grant. Um, but I uh, I'm sure I've seen one or two other specifics, but I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that's something that. I really hope funders will think of in the next few years as well. Kind of, there's so much out there now. Why don't we actually kind of embrace the fact that we don't need to collect new data every time? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think because it also it would also indirectly incentivize open data and good open data, right? Because that's that's another thing. Like, I think in the future we'll. Um, uh, hopefully get to a point where um, it's really going to benefit you to have made an, a really good data set available because you're also going to get credit for everybody else who uses, uses it. And then if other people using it, if other people are incentivized to use it, then, you know, you get more credit for that. And, you know, it's, it's perhaps going to aid the whole process of not just getting people to dump shitty spreadsheets uh, on some repository, but actually, you know, curate it well and do it well and do it more. Well, yeah, that, that was kind of my thought. I mean, that when, I, when I've been thinking about our, our study, like the first quote unquote paper is going to be, here's the data. Like, it's going to be a description of the method. It's going to be a data paper, right? It's not going to be analysis. It's going to be purely a, like all the time that I would have spent on an analysis, I plan on spending on curating it so that other people can use it because like the, the data is the research output, right? Often, I, I think often more so than a paper, but that's maybe my own bias kind of showing yeah and i mean I, it's been my experience in general with that oh, and i mean yeah, and you i guess you've all had the same experience that just being being very transparent being re working reproducibly takes a shitload of time right? and to me a big part of that is um making sure your data are uh fair like usable and and all that and and very like in that and just completely transparent and that is already half the work basically that you know um, people don't need you anymore like the data can stand by themselves yeah which i think again is a is another challenge that people see because i think some people expect that like sharing data is inviting collaboration rather than like actually just sharing data for other people to use um at least in the conversations that i've seen on twitter it's become that very quickly and it's like it's not about you i don't understand what <laughs> like we're coming at this from very different perspectives right now um that's a challenge um so i i guess we're kind of getting close to the end of uh end of our time um sophia did you have any kind of wrap-up questions that you wanted to ask Anne? Well, I was I was going to cheekily ask um, what what her opinion was on um, your crisis projects, but I mean they sound great, so I feel like that's that that, that would just be that would just be silly. But I mean, sure, Anna. Oh, so what's your opinion on these crisis uh, projects? Uh, of of Sam's and Amy's, yes. you mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm. Um, I mean, uh, first, I'm biased, obviously. <laughs> It's like my conflict of interest statement will say I am on uh, on your guys' podcast right now. It makes it difficult to be critical. Um, no, but mm, I honestly what? think... <laughs> that's, that's such an insult. I would hope that... No, yeah, so, that sorry. You'd, you'd sorry. Be I mean, happy to be critical. This is, just, this is just one part of the conflict of interest. The bigger part is obviously that you're all extremely lovely and extremely smart people, and I like you a lot. And so pretty. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but I, so... I mean, I mean, first, it's the, the, you, you seem to be very, um, uh, uh, Sam, you and, you and Amy seem to be very, um, dedicated to, to doing this well. And I think you, I, I trust you guys, uh, in general a lot with, with taking those things very seriously. But also they sound like, uh, yeah, like projects where you want to track stuff over time and it's not so much about 
chugging things out now, you know. So it has a lot fewer of these problems that I'm worried about, which is like, you know, so much time pressure and then also all these incentives that might lead you to to cut corners both to make it to make to just get it out now but also um because you want a specific response uh, and this is why you're doing it and i think the um projects that are more like this um you know just just tracking data that we know like behaviors that will be different right now in this situation than they normally are I think it can be super valuable, um, especially if it's if it's good quality data, right? And so if you're being very concerned about making that uh, work, then I think it, it could be great. So I have no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so we we always tend to finish with uh, the same kind of question for our awesome ECR guests. Um, so I think we'll do that today as well. So Anne. Uh, if if you had any any advice, it doesn't have to be related to the current situation um, for early career researchers. Um, what would it be? Oh my god! Any advice? Yeah, any, any, any. Yeah, but make it the best. <laughs> oh god! I mean, I mean, you can just say like wash your hands. That that's fine. But it might, um, but more profound is always nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know how useful. Uh, so I'm sure I'm sure I'm gonna remember tons of things after after this is over that I should have said instead. Um, I think so. My in my own so I've I'm, I've had a strange uh, I have a bit of a strange CV because I um uh, I first uh, studied something different. I started studying molecular biology and then I quit that program and then I started psychology and then uh, I quit my first PhD. Uh, and switch to the one that I do now on meta science, and um, it's been my experience that um, it's really, really, really important to take your own, um, to take yourself seriously in what you feel comfortable with and what you want, and that it's, I think, often it might often be a mistake to like sacrifice um, what feels right. Because just because you think, oh, I need to get this finished, or I need this degree now, or I need, I, it's, it would be more, I don't know, uh, you know, I could make more money in this career, something like that. I think we often, we're probably often faced with, with feelings like that. And I've certainly been, so I'm, I was, um, even in my old PhD, I think I stuck in there for longer than maybe I should have, because I thought, I, you know, just keep your head down and push through. And this is, you know, then you can, and, um, to me, I think it's, any time I've I've made a decision that was like no this is I'm now going to go with what my gut says even if it's risk it's a bit more uncertain and risky it's always been better for me <laughs> um, and I don't know it's surely not always going to be better for everyone but I just think it 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 makes so much of a difference um, to do something that you're enthusiastic about that feels right that is important to you and you shouldn't sacrifice what you think is right or important. Um, um, and I think, yeah, I think we should take ourselves more seriously. And sometimes that's, um, uh, sometimes that's sort of very scary because you feel like, oh, I'm in this system, I'm stuck in the system, or it's like, it, it wouldn't be, it's, you can't do this, or it's against the norms, or it's like, there's no way, but there's always a way. You know, there's always, there are always options. You're never in a situation where there are no options at all. That's a really nice kind of positive end note. Thanks, Anne. Um, uh, so we will we'll link to all of your stuff and the blog post in the show notes for for listeners that that don't already. I kind of assume that everybody listening to this knows who you are already, um, but just so they definitely read the the post too. Oh, can I can I do um, can I say, can I give one last uh, shout out about this yeah. stuff with the blog post? So one thing that was extremely heartwarming. Uh, yesterday, somebody, uh, Jeff Lees tweeted that, uh, he actually, um, slowed down on a study after reading my blog post. So they invested, it seems like a week more than they otherwise would have in, uh, making and Im improving their design. And he thinks it really helps. And that was just the nice thing I've ever, <laughs> I've ever heard. It was so lovely to read. Yeah. I sometimes feel like that's, that feels like the biggest impact that a lot of, sort of open sciencey related stuff can kind of have sometimes is forcing people to think a bit more 
Um, oh, it's just, it's nice. That's really cool. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Anne. It's been really nice to, to talk to you. Um, thank you to listeners for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter and all of that kind of stuff. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, look after one another, and we'll see everybody soon. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. It was lovely. Bye. Bye. <laughs>